We want to see you in a... Before there was Bo, Brett, or even Barry, there was Pat. Live from the Park Bank ESPN Madison Studios, you're listening to The Pat Richter Show with Jim Rutledge and former Wisconsin Athletic Director Pat Richter. ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. Jim Rutledge with you live from the Park Bank ESPN Madison Studios. We're brought to you in part by Simden Chevy in Mount Horeb. You're only minutes away from a better buying experience at Simden Chevy in Mount Horeb. I've had a better buying experience at Simden Chevy in Mount Horeb, and you can too if you're in the market for a new Colorado or Silverado or a new-to-you Chevy truck. I recommend Simden Chevy in Mount Horeb. Pat, how are you doing today? Doing well, a little bummed out, but doing well. Can't can't complain, I guess. Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, going on that we got to talk about. We'll get to the Brewers, but I just think that we should start with Badgers, and we'll get to the the product on the football field here against Brett Bielema. But I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't start with Rebecca Blank and her uh, transferring, I guess, if you will, not necessarily not technically, but uh, moving on to take over as Northwestern. She's the president elect at Northwestern, Rebecca Blank, and she was uh, over here at Madison. So what does that kind of affect here at uh, the University of Wisconsin and with Chris McIntosh and the overall Badger athletic program? Well, I would think it would probably be more positive than anything else because uh, the fact that she's still in the Big Ten and knows a little bit about Wisconsin, obviously, and uh, is now at Northwestern, you know, she's she's seen what's going on in the big thing. So I think overall it's going to be positive for for all the schools in there just because she's, uh, I think she's got some leadership roles this year as well, and that may transfer. Uh, you know, we, we knew this was coming at Northwestern, uh, some change, because we did the search down there for the athletic director. It was common knowledge that uh, Morty Shapiro was going to leave within about a year, and that's exactly what happened. I, I guess I hadn't followed it that closely. I knew that she had been, on the faculty down there in a high position down in uh, Northwestern. And so I think they were doing the same sort of thing that uh, sometimes you do in the uh, AD spots is you get some people that are familiar with what's going on. Certainly I think that uh, she's very positive with respect to athletics, but you certainly know that she's taken positions, very strongly positions with respect to not really happy with the way things are going in terms of pay-for-play type of stuff and things like this. So... So she's going to be a big player in that, but I think certainly Northwestern is, uh, has always looked upon a little being a little bit different in terms of, uh, you know, not necessarily overwhelmingly uh, geared up towards athletics, but it's a very high academic school. And so but overall, I think it's probably a positive move. Yeah, and Pat, you can kind of, obviously you can speak to this. How important is it? the symmetry and the relationship between the athletic department and you know school president just to make sure that everything 
has kind of the same vision, and I know you've had uh, obviously some good experience with that at UW. Yeah, no, that's the key. That's the key factor. I don't think there's any secret that when I left, uh, probably there wasn't the best of terms, but uh, with respect to what's going on there. But uh, it was with Shalila and David Ward. We uh, had a good, a good burst because we had some tough decisions to make with respect to uh, not only cutting sports but the gender equity. And David Ward picked that up from Donna and was very strong uh, in just in terms of making sure that we didn't roll over and do everything that they wanted us to do because it was just an equity situation and nobody else was giving you to do it in the Big Ten. So it's really very key. And when we do searches and things like this, that's the primary primary uh, situation is with respect to what kind of relationship is the athletic director have with the, uh, with the chancellor or president? Uh, are they supportive of athletics? And uh, so there's an awful lot of information that's out there in the public on the Internet and things like this in terms of different types of uh, positions they've taken with respect to legislation, things like that. So it's it's the key position in terms of uh, relationship. Now, not some of these schools, they don't have the uh, president or chancellor supervised. They maybe have turned it over to a provost and things like this. But by and large, uh, you're not going to get the really the good people that you want unless you have a direct reporting relationship. Many of them even get into uh, a faculty position, you know, vice president uh, for athletics, things like this, to move the titles around and things like that. But by and large, that's the primary relationship that has to be solid, just like it is with the head coaches, especially in basketball and football, with respect to the athletic director. And, Pat, what do you, I guess, at Wisconsin, and what is the process here? This is the Pat Richter Show, 100.5 ESPN, ESPN at Band Wisconsin on demand. Now, I mean, what do they do? Who has a say? What, what is, you know, what is Wisconsin going to be going through here over the next, I don't know, six months or so, or however long? Well, they have, they've had a difficult time with it, to be honest with you. I mean, you know that the, Tommy Thompson now is the interim chance, uh, mm-hmm. president of the system, and they they had a someone that was selected and eventually turned the job down after thing was going to accept it, and so that's not easy. The difficult part, some of it is is to do with finances. Uh, they have never really paid market rate, so to speak. It's always been, I think, a little bit of looking at the, that uh, if, in fact, they go to Wisconsin there, they, they, it's a good enough job that it doesn't have to be paid at the top end. And I think they've lost some people because of salaries and things like this. But uh, I noticed uh, that the Northwestern mentioned, and I, this is, it made me kind of shudder, that a 34-person search committee, <laughs> and uh, they had a trustee that overlooked the whole process and it made sense when he said he mentioned that the the trustees a group of trustees were involved and and i think as long as you're honest with the search committee they know that they they're not going to have a hundred percent say in who the chancellor or president's going to be but the fact is, is that the smaller committee is grouped to to take a look at the uh the, the pool of candidates narrow it down and then bring back the either person or persons that they say, this is a person we want you to vet and, uh, and to talk to, and, uh, but we think this is the best person for the job. And so I don't know about the university. Certainly I don't think they've had a search committee that's been that large because the larger it is, the more difficult it is to keep confidentiality. And that's one of the primary concerns in a search like this is that the, uh, it's got to be confidential because 
you know, you have some people at certain schools and things like that that are in very high positions, obviously, and uh, to get their name out in the public, being that they're thinking of moving and then having it not happen, uh, is, is hurts uh, the standpoint of their viability for future jobs, things like that. So it's a very delicate process, and I sometimes it takes people from within. Maybe there's someone on campus here who that they're looking at. You just don't know. Uh, hopefully, it's someone that's as supportive of athletics as uh, as, uh, as uh, Rebecca Blank has been. Pat, w- moving to the football field side of things. Well, I guess we'll start off the field. It's pretty uncommon uh, what's going on with Jalen Berger. He was dismissed from the team. Paul seemed annoyed, but also genuinely surprised that I think he was about five straight questions during his press conference about what's happening with Berger because he's now the third scholarship running back. Uh, out of the Badger running back room. It does leave him a little bit thin. And also, I believe next year's recruiting class, there's nobody committed. So, uh, and all of a sudden, and we, look, the top end guys are, are still right there and you can get uh, transfers, but Malusi and Allen are doing great. Garado's doing uh, pretty well. So, it's not that the cupboard's bare, but it's it's way thinner than it's been in a long time at University of Wisconsin. Well, it used to be a big problem, Jim. I think bigger than it is now because I mean, there's probably you get a couple of guys that are be standing at the portal, uh, transfer portal doors, mm-hmm. saying, "I I want to come in," given Malusi's uh, uh, experience, and so it's a little bit different than it was before. It's almost like you can go out, back out, and and almost say, "Okay, instantaneously, we've got an opening now." You, you know, you can come in if you have a big enough uh, uh, ability to to handle the things like the past guys you've had, like Monte Ball, Rondé, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think that that's not as bad as it's going to be in the future or in the past. And so I think that they'll be all right in that regard. main thing is if they get Grotto uh, healthy, I mean, he supposedly is, I think, the fastest guy on the team. And uh, But uh, Brennan uh, Allen did a good job. Uh, Malusi seems to be durable. And... Uh, I can see where you know, this is maybe where someone has been, you know, kind of recruited all their life, Jalen Berger, and uh, in being a top-notch athlete, which is what he was, and someone come in for whatever reason, whether he more physical and whatever, but uh, kind of took the spot. He, certainly, he's had more experience coming into the system, and uh, with the respect to Clemson at a high level, and so uh, he he ran pretty well, and so. It's one of those things where you, it's very difficult maybe to accept the fact that you're going to be relegated to a kind of a backup role and things like that. And so the other things that went on, who knows what that might have been or contributed to the factor of him uh, deciding to uh, to not accept what the role he was going to play and then uh, Paul thinking it's best for the team to let him go. And on the football field, the, the Badgers were able to, to use that run game. Notably, Berger uh, didn't play in that game. I think that triggered a lot of you know fans and media wondering what was going on. But they were able to beat Brett Bielema. Paul never shows it outwardly. I don't know if he showed it inwardly. I'm sure the players were well aware. They didn't want to lose to Brett. That would have been Brett's 100th win. And it was homecoming for Illinois, so lots of reasons for the Badgers to to come out, as Matt uh, LaFleur would call it, with, uh, we'll say their pee on fire. Uh, I don't (laughs) know if you saw that, (laughs) but um, the Badgers did come out ready to play. Yeah, it really was. I mean, these are are kind of trap games, and they're very, 
very touchy in terms of getting off to a good start, uh, making sure that you keep them down when they're down. I mean, it uh, kind of went back and forth a little bit to start with and uh, could have uh, could have gone either way there for a while. But uh, the fact that you shut him out and, and anybody out is, is a big deal. And, uh, and I think that that was uh, one of the things, the little subtle things that you hear, you know, they, you mentioned about it being a homecoming game. Now, most schools, and uh, I know it was the way when we were in school, you try to pick a school that you think you can beat, and uh, you want to have a, the alumni and people coming back to have a good time. And so just the fact that Wisconsin was a homecoming uh, opponent could be one where Paul was using it, could have used it as kind of a motivator, saying, that, well, this is what they think you think, this is going to be a a win for them, and they picked you guys out of all the schools they could have had, and so uh, so it's kind of a locker room material type of stuff, billboard material, and when they do something like that, and so with the, Brett there, it kind of added fuel to the fire, and uh, and everybody was uh, probably at their best in that regard, and I think it's it's good because it shows what they can do, and now for the future and what's coming up ahead of them saying, look, you're able to do it this game, and they're not a strong team, not as strong as you're going to be playing, but they're good build-up on this in terms of this part of the schedule, in terms of just incrementally getting better and better, is going to be very important towards the end of the year. This is the Pat Richter Show, 100.5 ESPN, ESPN app, and Wisconsin on the man. Varsity, the best of the Badgers on Wisconsin on demand. Since 93, I've never taken a field against anyone not thinking we had a legitimate chance to win. Subscribe to the Varsity Podcast, brought to you by Metro Ford on Wisconsin on demand and wherever you get your podcasts. Protect your home or business. There's only one call to make, and that's the JK Security Solutions. The JK they work hard to protect the things that matter most in your life. For more information, call 2555-799 or visit jksecurity.com. Jim Rutledge with you live from the Park Bank ESPN Madison Studios with Pat Richter. And Pat, uh, you mentioned it earlier, a little bit down today. The Brewers, I would say I was surprised uh, that they lost. In the you know in their first round, their first round of playing here against Atlanta, I thought at least they'd get to the NLCS. I thought they were a better team than Atlanta, and then who knew what happened with the pitching they had? I know the bats uh, have not been consistent really all year, but I thought there was enough here for this Brewers team to to really make a sneaky run, possibly to the World Series. We did post the poll last night, and this was after the Brewer game, but we asked if this is the most disappointing Brewers season in recent memory and 58%, so not a landslide, but there was a lot of votes. 58% said yes. Obviously some harsh feelings there, but I think it's definitely up there as far as a disappointing season. Yeah, well, I mean, we were the whole season, we just since Adamas joined the club, I mean, some of the other additions they had with Telez and uh, guys like that, I mean, it really was kind of on an up track the whole time in terms of just the trajectory was to you know, being a very successful team, they they seemed to bring in guys that they were that they needed. They had the pitching. I think that the Williams injury really threw them for a loop a little bit. Uh, they could have maybe won one of the, the games that they lost early in this uh, in the Atlanta series uh, with him around. He just he was too valuable a player 
not to uh, to miss in that regard. And uh, you know, who would have think that uh, they get the hit off of uh, Hater and Lefty Lefty uh, type of situation? But you know, it was one of those deals where the pitching really seemed to play well. I mean, I think it was on the broadcast that they reminded us that, you know, even though the Brewers had only had a very modest uh, runners in scoring position percentage, Atlanta was not much better. It seemed like everything was a a home run and here and there and and kind of dink and dunk and things like that. And it just seemed also that sometimes you get uh, pressing like that and you're really trying to do too much. I mean, I think there were guys who were swinging at pitches that I would never seen him swing at during the season. I mean, Garcia in particular. I mean, they had him, the right-handed pitcher, his right-handed uh, kind of a little curveball on the inside inside of the, the strike zone. Even most times they were like six inches off the strike zone, but a tough pitch to hit for a right-hander, and he just couldn't get untracked. And... And poor Yelich, I mean, I you feel sorry for the guy. I mean, he he just uh, doesn't seem to really have any idea what 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 he needs to do to get uh, back on track. I was kind of curious as to watching uh, Bellinger for the Dodgers because he kind of had a bad year as well, and just watch him how he and it was so different. I mean, he he attacks the ball. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I almost threw a look through the TV set for taking the first pitch strike that uh, Christian did. I mean, he took a lot of first pitches, and usually that's the first one. I mean, guess fastball, guess anything. Because after that, I mean, to sit there and watch that, him take that last strike last night, it was it was just uh, really disappointing because, you know, he, he wanted to do as much as he could and just almost like he froze. And uh, and Adamas tried to do a lot of things. Tellez seemed to be the, the hero of the the time, pretty, pretty much, and and the pitchers. I mean, Lauer did a great job. Uh, they they just uh, couldn't get on track by these guys from the from Atlanta. And Freddie Freeman is is the reason why he's the most valuable player, and he he showed it last night. Uh, he did, and this. Um... I don't know what to do with Christian Yelich. I guess the fact that the bat ended on his shoulder, I think, really kind of epitomizes the last, I don't know, 16 to 18 months for him. And it's surprising. I just don't, I mean, by no, don't know what to do with him is that I don't understand. I mean, he. I know he hurt his knee, but I was fully expecting a bounce back here. Last year, there's so many good players that had weird seasons, but most of the rest of them bounced back to, maybe they didn't have all their stats back, but at least the power or something. But Yelich just hasn't looked like himself in a very long time. No, I mean, he just looks uh, really uh, confused up there at the plate. I mean, uh, you know, and and, and Council just was going to force a square peg in a round hole. He was going to make him be a guy that can deliver, and, and he got some hits, but they weren't with the runners in scoring position. I mean, a couple of times he got grounders that got through and uh, for singles, but they were at the wrong wrong time. And uh, he, just, he just really was – when he, it's an odd thing. I mean, it's just kind of when he takes a swing and almost like poses, like it's frozen. It doesn't seem to have the energy that you know. Like, like I say, I mentioned attack the ball. It's kind of like a half-hearted. You know, just I, I'm guessing so much, and then when you start guessing too much, you get confused. You can kind of overthink this whole thing. I mean, I, you, I think they did a great job. Uh, Atlanta did in scouting. 
the uh, the players. I mean, and and I think we talked about it all year, and it was a surprise to me. Obviously, that just seemed like everybody went bad at the same time, except for maybe Telez. Uh, you know, Escobar just couldn't uh, get off the, the squares, and uh, and Narvaez did a pretty decent job. Manny Pena didn't get the chance to do much. Uh, you know, but when you have Christian being as 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 confused and as kind of uh, helpless as he was, you, you want to maybe try to put somebody else in there and give him take a chance to to pick it up. I mean, there's been some guys like Urias did a pretty decent job, and uh, I was a little disappointed in Wong. I, up to that point, I kind of had him and pegged as my most valuable player for the the, the, the Brewers because he really did a lot of things, but that, that last bunt and just just – Seemed like they were. They really had them pretty well squared away, in terms of uh, where they had difficulty hitting a pitch, and and those are good pitchers, and no question about it. And uh, but it would be nice to if we got back to Milwaukee and give them another chance because, you know, it was uh, it was just too too fast of a close for a good season like that. It was, and it seems like a large chunk of these players will be back. The wild card will be. The payroll for the Brewers because I would Cor- Corbin Burns will get a massive raise in arbitration. So will a guy like Woodruff, and uh, Hater is going to get a big jump. Uh, Adamus, like a lot of these players are, were on really low contracts, and it's all scaled. And not every one of these players might get the huge jumps based on kind of where you know the baseball pay scale is kind of hard to figure out. They have a lot of guys under contract until really free agency 24, 25 is kind of really where those players fully come up. But at the same time, as arbitration hits with these players over the next few years, their numbers are going to skyrocket, and the Brewers' payroll might go up $25, $30 million without adding a single player. So that'll be interesting. I know that uh, Avial Garcia and or Avisil Garcia and Jackie Bradley Jr. have player options. But other than that, most of the team is, is really under contract as far as the important players. Yeah, I had forgotten about Bradley. I mean, it was too bad, but he just uh, he couldn't get it on track this year as well. I mean, very few times, other than being a pinch runner or something like that, uh, occasional single. I think everybody that uh, had seen him play and the announcers and everybody up to that point uh, had said, you know, he's the guy that's kind of uh, built for the playoffs, things like that. But I'd forgotten all about him. Just so you mentioned his name, we didn't even see him in the series here. And so it was really... You know they're going to have to be selective, obviously, but it it just didn't it didn't happen for whatever reason with the team that's put together. Do you have great confidence it can happen? Maybe maybe they'll, they'll try to move uh, Elich. I don't know, but it's it's kind of like damaged goods right now, and uh, maybe he's going to one of the guys maybe going to play winter ball or something. But you know it just doesn't seem like he's attacking with the same vengeance of the ball. Maybe that has to do with his knee. You know, it, it seems like that's uh, something that should be over the uh, over by now, and and certainly give him a little bit more confidence that he can press it and, and push it a little bit more pressure on the knee and and things like that. But it's really uh, it's really too bad. They just had a great year. Everybody seemed to do things, but you know, and just uh, with the Atlanta saying they came into the series, you know, winning ten or twelve out of sixteen or whatever it was. Brewers just the opposite, and that, that uh, I guess now we know that uh, maybe being a little bit tough games during the year. I mean, they had an awful lot of good times, which is great, and made us happy. And they were just coming back from 
being down at the end of the game to pull it out in the last couple of innings. I mean, all the great things that happened with the Vogelbach's walk-off grand slammer and things like that. It happens this sudden and kind of a big thump just to drop you because it's just you can't get over. You got to build that credibility. I mean, even as good as they've played, there wasn't a great deal of of uh, support for them going a, a good run in the series, uh, get a chance to get on the World Series. They didn't get the respect they deserved, perhaps, but they got a nice club. And, and Stearns has put together some really great, uh, some great players. And whether or not they can hang on to him is another story. But they have proven that they can. They've got a good eye for talent. And if, in fact, there's some players that they can't lose, it's more surgical this time. It's not a massive overhaul, but there's a lot of new guys there. And I think that uh, being surgical about it, this should, this should hurt them as much as anybody and uh, certainly give them a great uh, incentive to, uh, to put, come back next year even stronger. You hit on my last question I had. You kind of danced around a little bit. Stearns, uh, headlights in New York, uh, really, client, you know, clamoring for Stearns to, to go to the Mets. And the Mets don't look like a great job, but at some point, money can trump things. You can make it two different ways. He's young enough to wait it out and, and kind of still Billy Bean it here in Milwaukee and wait for the Yankees or one of the top jobs to come available. Or you could say, hey, he can go collect his payday, and if the Mets don't work out, he's still going to have plenty of time uh, to go out and get paid again as a as a GM or team president. So it really depends on uh, what the Mets are willing to pay in cash and in uh, prospects because Antanasio was quoted with WTMJ as saying that like Stearns is under contract, but at the same time, it's where he wants to be. So if Stearns doesn't want to be here, I think the Brewers would accommodate that. They don't want to keep someone here who doesn't want to be here, but at the same time, they're not going to just let him walk. So that is an interesting dynamic right now for the Brewers. Heck, they might end up with a, there's reports they might end up with a really high end prospect for the Mets, but I still don't know if that trades out. Yeah, I think that uh, you know he's been around long enough to know that uh, these things are awful fickle. And uh, in the Mets, I mean, how, how many guys have you got to have a pretty good feeling that you can be confident in your abilities to to take on that job? Because if you don't, I mean, you can get hammered. It's going to be a it's a brutal job in terms of uh, the Mets. You know, they, they just in, when you mention the word Mets. There's a connotation to it that always starts with the negative thinking. And so when it's good, it's, it couldn't be any better than that. But it's certainly very, very few times when it's been that way. And, and I think that, uh, you know, Theo Epstein going from the Red Sox to the Cubs, hit lightning in a bottle, shortly all of a sudden it didn't happen, and bingo, those things happen so, so quickly. I, I just think that, uh, you know, he's got a good situation there. And, and getting this club... I think you look at the the Bucks in terms of getting the Brewers back to a position of winning the World Series. Nothing could be uh, a greater accomplishment and probably more satisfying than doing that. This is the Pat Richter Show, 100.5 ESPN, ESPN app, and Wisconsin. The man. Show live from the Park Bank ESPN Madison Studios. Time now for Sounds of the Week. What did she say? These 
These are the sounds of the week on the Pat Richter Show. Brought to you by Simden Chevrolet and Mount Horeb. You're only minutes away from a better buying experience. Well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Time for Sounds of the Week now here on the Pat Richter Show. Trying to eliminate what you have to do here, Strophy. What's that? We're just going to eliminate you. We're just going to fire. We're going to have big voice guy do all your Yeah, yeah. Might, might as well, right? Yeah. Play the sounds. Pat reacts. We're going to go first to Jeff Passan, ESPN MLB insider, who is on Wildy and Tausch this morning. And he talked about the struggles that Christian Yelich has been having. Here's Jeff Passan. How do people view Christian Yelich right now league-wide? He's one of the biggest mysteries in baseball right now because you look at what happened during the pandemic season and everyone around baseball just says, okay, if he struggled in 2020, hey, we all struggled in 2020. The issue is he struggled in 2021 as well. That's much harder to look past, right? Right. He had a full 162-game season this year to come out and illustrate that he's the MVP caliber player that he's been in the past and we just didn't see it. And, you know, there are always things going on with players, whether it's in their lives or otherwise, that I don't know about. So I can't sit here and say Christian Yelich is not going to find what he once had. People are just waiting to see it, you know? Now, Pat, you kind of already answered. You echoed a lot of what Jeff Passan had to say there, but do you think that Yelich will find his groove again, or is this just the downfall of a former MVP at this point? I think he will. I think he's he spends a lot of time, uh, you know, with himself in terms of being a professional. He came in early to camps and things like this, and I think that, uh, you know, I mean, it's a big it's a big deal. I mean, he's he's getting an awful lot of money. There's an awful lot of weight on his shoulders in that regard in terms of. You know, going up there and performing, and uh, he's a professional, and and I think that the probably the best thing he can do right now is just to get away from it and maybe have one of those Aaron Rodgers off-season uh, type of situations. I don't know, <laughs> maybe that way he can clean his mind off and everything else. But uh, I think I think he'll come back, and I, I to to what extent and how strong it's another story. It's just I think he's going to do an awful lot of film work, and I think if he sees it. Is, is a lot of it is going to be upstairs, and that's uh, that's something that only he can clean up in, in that regard. And so I think I think he will get come back better, and maybe put him down the lineup to start with. But he, there were times this year when it looked like he was coming back, and then all of a sudden it slipped away, and we we kind of got back into the same malaise again. And so uh, so hopefully some find a way to to keep it there. He's too young to say that his best days are beyond him, but he also wouldn't be the first MVP player to maybe not hold that level. So maybe the MVP, and I'm just saying that maybe the MVP seasons are gone, but I can, I still can't imagine anything more than a worst-case scenario of him being a all-star level player. Yeah, I mean, maybe nope. you sit down with Cody Bellinger and kind of see what he went through, because it sounds yeah. like they're very similar this year, and uh, one kind of emerged a little bit and one didn't, so... Only 29 years old, Christian Yelich is. So plenty of time to get back on track. But uh, like Passon said, we'll just have to wait and see. One of the acquisitions the Brewers made this year was going out and getting Rowdy Tellez. And Rowdy says there's reason for optimism after last night's loss. You know, we got a good group of guys. We got a core that's not going to change. We got a young core. Um, we got the best pitching in baseball, I think. And I think we're just, after this loss, you know, it's tough. It's kind of devastating. We didn't think it would be like this. Um, but, you know, we're going to focus on next year and come back. And, and we're always going to be a force here. I, I got to be I gotta be honest here. 
To be that optimistic immediately after a season-ending loss is mind-boggling to me, but he does make some good points, Pat. Yeah, I think he's uh, he's the kind of guy that you want talking out there. I mean, I think that he's exactly right. I mean, it's almost like doom and gloom when you have something happen like this that happened last night. But, uh, you know, you've got a lot of things to think about. It. The only problem is you've got to wait, you know, four or five months to get back at it. And that's, uh, that's the tough part because he had such a great year. Teles came in at a point in time when he kind of rode the crest there a little bit, but certainly kept coming. And I think he, uh, he, he was, should be very happy with the year that he had. And, uh, and I think that uh, maybe he kind of sets himself up as a little bit of a, a leadership here. I mean, just the fact that he steps out in front of it, I think it's a good sign, and uh, and you know Adamus is the same kind. Only he's got more of a rah-rah guy. Teles seems to be more methodical, and uh, but still, nevertheless, supportive and thankful for what he's got. And he had, came in and sees all the good things, and that's you need to set another set of eyes to come in and look at it from the outside, like he did, perhaps to really understand what you've got and how how happy you should be to have it. Next. Well, we'll stick with the Brewers. Here's Craig Council. He wasn't as uh, talky-talky as Rowdy was after the loss last night. Here's Craig. It's 12 at-bats or 13 at-bats. You know, it's it's a, it's a small sample. That's what these playoff series are about. It's, it's, you know, you don't get many opportunities, and they pitched really well, too. So the point he's trying to make there is the offensive struggles were what lost them this series. We know that, but... I mean, how do you manage? How, how do you approach the team and address the team after the the lack of offense, if you will, Pat, in most of that series? Well, there's not an awful lot you have to say. I mean, they understand what what they had and, what, and how, how they lost it, and uh, everybody had to have the kind of the tough times at the same time, which indicates that perhaps the guy on the other side of the uh, fence, the pitchers. It had something going for them, just the same as uh, it was very selective in terms of the way the, the Atlanta Braves uh, took advantage of some of the things. And I mean, they're not nobody over over hit uh, out hit Brewers by that much, but you've got to really take it for what it's what it is. And he said it's a microcosm. You got to be ready to play it, and perhaps having that time off. Which we you think would be good because they lost a number of games in, in, uh, towards the end of the season might have been good, but this you know 10 or 12 bats for the season where you're maybe hitting up 400 times a 400 bats a year or maybe more, and uh, but you know you've got to park that in terms of playoff baseball is a lot different and, and maybe the Brewers aren't as used to that you know young guys and everything else. It's just going to be the same. Well, it's not. And some of the guys like Charlie Morton and Freed and pitchers like that, uh, they, they've been there before and know how to do it, and, uh, and they, they really understand that. And, uh, but, you know, he, he's got to be a little bit more of a doom and gloom and guy because he's got to feel bad because people don't want him to be smiling or anything like that, but he's got to be disappointed. You can see it in the dugout. Everything seemed to go the other way. You know, line, those, the day before, the, Two games ago, the line shots that came out third base, and you know they just picked them up. Uh, they just had guys that were just playing in the right spot at the right time, and sometimes that happens. I would say Morton. I just want to get on his performance. Thirty-seven years old goes out there, and I'm not taking a shot at Burns, but Morton goes out there at thirty-seven. But I think it speaks a little what Pat's saying. 
he knows he was quoted as saying in the broadcast that I don't have a lot of these opportunities. Yeah. And he was gunning it in at high 90s. The curveball didn't necessarily work the way he wanted to, but he gutted out a performance that kept his team in the game, gave him an opportunity to win. And I think right there is a prime example of the Braves who were uh, one game away from the World Series last year just knowing what this takes. And these opportunities are not, one, they're different, like you said, Pat, but also they're not guaranteed. No, and he didn't uh, He didn't make the mistakes that some of the other pitchers make. I mean, every pitch he threw, like whether it's every Yelich or Garcia, whatever, I mean, he was down and he made him swing at everything in the dirt. I mean, even Telez did it. I mean, he's just, it's it's, it's a real knack to that, making things look good halfway to the plate and all of a sudden the bottom drops out of it. And he was able to do that time and time again. He certainly was. Jim, you're only a few years past 37, right? You could be out there throwing some fastballs. (laughs) I. You might take my top two, like take two pitches from me, and I don't know if I'm hitting 97 right now. Uh, you You're know, never I mean? hitting 97. That's what I'm saying. If I threw, <laughs> I'd throw like 45 and 45. Oh, okay. Is my point of like if I was like at a gun right now, you could combine those two pitches, and I don't know if I'm reaching 97. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you guys can to get that now. We we had pitchers that threw pretty hard, but we just had no gun or anything like that. I have no idea how fast these guys were throwing when we were playing baseball back in college. Well, and Pat, the other part of it is back in your day, but also. Also now too, it's the movement on these things because they talk about Hater. Hater's not quite really that ninety-seven. His ball when he's on point and it didn't do this against Freddie Freeman, it rises or it falls, and, and that's the the even harder part. That uh, obviously when you played, they still this was still happening, but now they're able to track how much a ball moves. So it might oh, be yeah. coming at ninety-four and it's going up or down or all over the place, which makes it feel like it's popping into the glove. Well, they got all those kinds of stats, and they, he, Freeman probably figured that he was going to fake him out. The hater wasn't going to come with the heat. He was going to give him a curveball or a slider or something like that off speed, and he was ready for it. He was, and look, that's and we got to go to break here, but that's a that's a mistake, that's a pitch, that's a play you live with. You have your best pitcher against one of the best hitters in baseball, and the best guy won at that at bat. It's the other stuff that makes it more difficult uh, to kind of you know accept. This is the Pat Richter Show at 100.5 ESPN, ESPN app, and Wisconsin on the man. Metro Kia's Thursday Night Drive. If we want to talk about winning the Big Ten, the only way we're getting there is with those receivers. Subscribe to the Thursday Night Drive podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Oak Park Place offers seniors and their loved ones peace of mind. Find the right balance of care that you need centered around your lifestyle. Move to a community with neighbors that become like family. Enjoy the comforts of your apartment with the abundance of events just outside your door. Choose the fit that is right for you from independent living to assisted living, memory care, and short-term rehabilitation. Oak Park Place with locations on Madison's east side in the Nakoma neighborhood, Janesville, and Baraboo. Visit oakparkplace.com to learn more. Pat, the question I have for you, and it involves your former team, the Washington football team, and the investigation into really just a, a mess they've been over there with Dan Snyder. It's a good word to use, yeah. And in that mess, uh, the John Gruden emails came out. It was kind of a slow burn here, and like he deserves every bit of consequence that uh, he's receiving on it. So there's two parts to this. One, uh, the Gruden aspect of it, but also, where are the replies to this email? I mean, you got Dan Snyder, you got Bruce Allen, you got business owners across the, the, the country on these emails. I, I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Well, it really is, and that's, that's probably the part of the problem is that everybody's calling for the rest of these emails to be let out because uh, they said, well, the NFL doesn't want to do this and that, whatever. Well, they somehow they leaked out just uh, enough to uh, to create a firestorm, and uh, and rightly so, get Gruden in, uh, captured in that respect with respect to what he had done himself. But certainly, when you had 650,000 emails, I mean, there's got to be an awful lot of nervous people out yeah. there that is wondering what's going to happen. And uh, and because uh, when you, you know, no one really knew what they were dealing with with respect to the uh, the proliferation of emails and how you can you capture what they said and go back and on their drives. I mean, I have no clue myself what they can do with it, but certainly everybody's got to know that those things are out there and they're going to be be creating some real issues for some people. And so I think. I think that they're going to be forced into doing some of that. I mean, the NFL Players Association and DeMora Smith, and, of course, he was a subject matter to a number of those emails, and I happen to, to know him and, and uh, was involved in his, his selection process to be the executive director. I mean, he's going to get to the bottom of this thing. He's a smart guy, and uh, if, if, in fact, they're talking about him that way, there's got to be a lot of other things out there, and there's got to be a lot of nervous people that are just going so, to say that, a lot of scrubbing of hard drives went on yesterday. Yeah, and you know, there's the the trickle down effect here, and, and Carl Nessip with the Raiders, uh, he took a personal day. It was you know the Raiders gave it to him because there it was more than the the Smith comments. It did come to uh, misogynistic, homophobic, and racist. Uh, and so Gruden. Uh, again, and like like you mentioned, there's there's more to come on this. Who else are on these emails? There's there's a lot more to come out. But uh, Gruden, I can't see him ever being able to coach anywhere again. Nor should he have the opportunity. But the Raiders uh, have a lot to account for. Mark Davis, he didn't fire Gruden. Uh, he, Gruden resigned. There has to be a lot of accountability from the Raiders, from Davis on down, Mayock, uh, the GM, to show these players that. Uh, they're on their side and not, you know, supporting or sympathizing with Gruden. Yeah, that's hard to do. I mean, he probably Gruden wanted to do it on his own terms, so he just why he resigned. But the fact is, is that those things have been out there for ten, twelve years or so, whatever it is, just kind of lingering out there and not even knowing what's what's going on. And so I think that for the Raiders have always been kind of an edgy team in that regard. And whether Davis, uh, you know, they had any clue where any of these things are out there, more than likely not. But the fact is is that uh, I think that uh, you're exactly right. I don't think there's going to be any anybody knocking at the door for John Gruden in the near future, in the future at all in, in that regard. And uh, and they've got to prove the, the team that they've got their back, so to speak. And, and I think that uh, the selection process, and I think you've got to assume that the coaches that he had there didn't know anything about this. And it was kind of probably between he and Bruce Allen, more likely. But uh, it's going to be hard to put the genie back in the bottle in this one. And I think that uh, the Raiders have kind of been that way a little bit. All of this one, they're kind of on a, on a periphery in terms of what can they do with it. They didn't know what's going on, and supposedly, and what can they do to overcome some of the the, the stains that they have on their on their uh, reputation and their their ball club. Yeah, and and they will they will have to overcome that. And you're right, there will be more of a fallout. Uh, the Washington football time, team's tight end. I mean, until a very low scale, even today, 
fallout on a minor level. Adam Schefter, uh, some of his emails as far as reporting things and trading emails with the GM and kind of gave you an insight into how these guys become the newsbreakers where they allow the GM to, to maybe make some changes and give them full uh, access to a story before it's written because that GM then gives them information in the long run. So even on a tiny scale, much smaller than the Gruden thing, there's going to be a lot of how the sausage is made as far as player personnel moves, agent con- agent conversations with their teams, uh, reporter conversations, uh, who were leaks within organizations as far as things to the media. It, it, it could keep on coming out for a while here. Hopefully nothing as uh, horrible as what's going on with Gruden. Yeah, it's a good point because uh, certainly with Schefter, the, the Aaron Rodgers situation this summer, you know, and hanging on to that, holding on to that story, and not uh, releasing it until the uh, till the draft and the things like that. I mean, you, 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 these guys don't. Uh, it's not. There's a quid pro quo out there somewhere. Yep. I mean, they don't just off offhand give these guys stories and whatever without something in return, either. You know, favorable treatment in terms of uh, stories and or not letting something out when they know something's there because their sources are going to be uh, exposed and uh, and not going to be the source anymore. And so you're made, that's a hell of a good point. I mean, I think in terms of that may be the more salacious part of this whole thing in terms of just the process and uh, certainly the the, uh, the, re- the implications of this goes much further than what happened to John Gruden. Pat, as always, we appreciate the time. Okay, good night. Talk to you next week. This has been the Pat Richter Show, 100.5 ESPN, ESPN app, and Wisconsin on demand.